We'll turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning is in the bulletin. It's Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1. Let me read that passage for us. Hear now the words of the living God. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, and knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, one of the questions that philosophers uh, have wrestled with ever since there's been philosophy uh, is the question of authority. Uh, Why is it ever the obligation, I'm sorry, why is it ever the case uh, that someone has a moral obligation uh, to submit to someone else? Why would it ever be the right thing for someone to do uh, to defer to the leadership of someone else? Where does authority come from? I wonder if you've ever thought about that question. If we're all equal, all men, all women are totally equal, and by the way, if you believe that, you believe that because of the Bible's influence on our civilization. But anyways, if we're all equal, why is it ever the case that one person can have authority such that another person ought to defer to them in any way? Well, people have given various answers to that question. Some have argued that ultimately authority is based on consent. So the reason my employer has some authority over my actions is that I consented to work for my employer. My consent created my employer's authority to tell me what to do within a very defined sphere. And many have argued that our government has legitimate authority only because it is a democratic republic. We consent to our system of government by voting, and so we give authority to it. There's certainly something to be said for the idea of consent. Consent is very important to the question of authority, but that doesn't really explain everything that we intuitively believe about authority. For example, most people still believe that children ought to do what their parents, not just all adults, but their parents tell them to do. Or at least most parents seem to believe that about their children. But at least when I was a kid, I never really had the opportunity to consent to or to opt out of my parents' authority. 
And praise the Lord, I had wonderful parents, but my consent was not really a precondition for their authority. Similarly, I don't really ever recall consenting to be born in the United States. So why am I obligated by its laws? And maybe for these reasons, you're someone who is against the very idea of authority. Maybe you think that all governments are illegitimate. You see the family unit as inherently oppressive. Well, if that's you, why should we listen to you? Right? Who, you, who gave you the authority to be armchair anarchist over there? Right? Why should we submit to your ideas about authority? Why is it ever the case that anyone anywhere should ever recognize anyone else's authority? It's a complicated question, and I don't propose a simple answer here. Uh, but the Bible's answer, the heart of the Bible's answer to the question of authority is given to us in these words from Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes there, There is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. The only reason that one person may ever legitimately, legitimately, exercise authority among other people is not because of the superiority or inferiority of the people involved. It's because God, the creator and king of all things, the all-wise, totally good, all-powerful king of creation, the ultimate source of all legitimate authority of its various kinds, The reason that human authority exists is because that God created a world with authority structures. He created a world where humans, made in His image, are capable of entering into authority relationships. And, this is so important, God made the world that way for our good. God made the world that way in love, for our flourishing. See, this is totally antithetical to what our culture tends to believe about authority. You say authority, and we tend to think things like harsh, hard, inequality, necessary evil, authoritarian. But we've got it all wrong. Authority does not imply any of those things. Authority does not imply inequality. In fact, you say authority, and the Bible says things like good, things like flourishing, things like love, things like covenant, things like intimacy, things like sunshine. Let me give you an illustration of the goodness of authority in the Bible's worldview. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, on day 4 of the creation week, God created the sun. And twice in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created the sun to rule over the day. To rule over the day. Clearly, that's a metaphor. But unpack the metaphor with me. 
How does the sun rule over the day? Does the sun get up in the morning and say, all right, today is another day in which everyone needs to devote all of their time and attention to meeting my needs. No one exercises any creativity or initiative or freedom here. I am the sun, I am the ruler, and I will dictate exactly what everyone must do at every moment because I'm the sun, I'm the ruler, I'm the point. Is that how the sun rules the day? No, that's not what the sun does. In fact, the way the sun rules the day is by creating the framework necessary for those under its rule to flourish. The sun rules the day by giving us sunshine and by going down at nighttime. The sun has authority to provide what's necessary for life on earth to blossom. Again, that's a metaphor, but I think it is a helpful illustration right at the beginning of the Bible about how God intends every form, and again, there are many different forms, of authority to work. I recently heard a very good sermon on 2 Samuel chapter 23, uh, which contains the last words of King David. Uh, They contain a beautiful poem specifically about kingly authority. That's a specific kind of authority. One of the most severe kinds of authority. But listen to what King David says in 2 Samuel 23. He says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, what is it like? David says, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. These would have been unequivocally positive images to an agricultural society. David here is speaking about the strongest and the firmest kind of human authority, much stronger, much more severe than anything that we'll talk about in this passage. And what does David say that that authority is like? He doesn't say, when one rules justly over men, it's like whips and shackles. He doesn't say, when one rules authority over men, it's like stubbing your toe in the dark. It really stinks and you're not sure what's going on. He says it's like sunshine. He says it's like rain that brings life. That's a blessing. Right? You know this. Haven't you ever studied history And notice the security and the abundance that good governments promote. Have you ever been in a flourishing classroom where the teacher uses authority wisely, gently, firmly, intelligently for the good of her students? Have you ever heard anyone rave about a good, helpful, inspiring, clear-headed boss how she gets the company where it needs to go and cares for her employees, right? Have you, think even for a second about types of authority that are non-moral, okay? Authority, quote unquote. Have you ever watched a team where the captain makes everyone else shine? Have you ever watched a dance where the lead makes his partner look awesome? Have you ever sung in a choir where the conductor brings each part into one magic harmony? Right? The Bible teaches that the many, many, many types of human authority come from God and exist to promote flourishing. 
They exist to be a blessing. Why should anyone ever submit to anyone else's authority? Well, the answer in each specific case might be really complicated, especially given the brokenness that sin has introduced to every corner of our world. But the big picture is that God, the ultimate authority, has created a world with authority structures that are designed to lead to flourishing for all involved. And that is essential to understanding our passage from Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 4 1. In our passage, the Apostle Paul addresses three different kinds. Again, that's really important different kinds of authority operative in three different relationships in which Christians might find themselves. It's worth pointing out the three relationships, again, that Paul talks about do not involve civil or governmental authority, at least not directly. These three relationships are much more personal and even intimate than that kind of authority. In our passage, first, Paul addresses the relationship between wives and husbands there in verses 18 and 19. Second, he addresses the relationship between children and parents in verses 20 and 21. And third, Paul addresses the relationship between bondservants and masters there in verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. And as Paul is addressing these relationships... It's important to see, he doesn't say everything that he could say about them. It's worth pointing out that everything that we looked at last week about how believers are to treat one another with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, all of that applies to how Christians treat each other in all of these relationships on both ends. But in our passage this morning, Paul focuses in, we might say, on the authority dimension of these relationships. It's so important to see right here at the beginning that Paul, along with the rest of the Bible, doesn't see the existence of authority in a relationship as a bad thing at all. It doesn't imply inequality. Please understand, you will not find a higher vision for love and intimacy and gentleness and companionship and mutuality in marriage than the vision you find for marriage in the Bible. And Paul, along with Peter and along with Jesus, doesn't think that a certain kind of gentle authority is incompatible with any of that. Paul doesn't see authority as bad. He sees it as supporting the very best kind of human love. Is authority often misused? Yes. And when it happens, it can be terrible. But is authority inherently problematic? The Bible clearly says no. In fact, in our passage, Paul instructs the Colossians, and by extension, church, he instructs us uh, to think about authority in light of Jesus Christ's lordship. That, I think, is Paul's main charge to us in this passage. Christian, view authority in light of Jesus Christ's lordship. View authority in light of Jesus Christ's lordship. Did you catch the word that gets repeated six times in our Bible passage? It's that word, Lord, every time used in reference to the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, this pleases the Lord. 
Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord. That same word gets translated as master there in chapter 4, verse 1. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at three relationships, the three relationships Paul talks about in this passage. And I want us to see how the lordship of Jesus Christ shapes each of these relationships. So the first relationship Paul addresses there in verses 18 and 19 is that of marriage. So full disclosure, I am not married. I have never been married. My thoughts on marriage are not worth your time. But look with me at what our wise and good creator and savior says to us about marriage in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, their wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul addresses wives first and then husbands. We'll follow his outline, but actually the first thing I want us to notice about what Paul says to wives has implications, I think, particularly for husbands. So notice the command verb or the imperative that Paul uses. He uses the word there, submit. To submit in this context means to put oneself under the leadership of someone else. It's to follow someone else in support and cooperation. When Paul's talking to wives, he uses the word submit. We'll look just a second at how Paul talks to the other parties under authority in this passage. When Paul is talking to children, what's the word he uses? Look at verse 20. Paul says, children, obey. When Paul is talking to bondservants, what's the word he uses? He says, bondservants, obey. Right? For children, obey. For bondservants, obey. For wives, submit. Uh, Paul chooses a different word for a different kind of authority here in marriage. See, it seems clear both from Paul's choice of words and from the rest of the Bible's teaching that the bread and butter of a husband's relationship with his wife is not to be the husband telling his wife what to do all the time. Paul doesn't summarize the relationship between husband and wife as husband command, wife obey. Husband, if that's how you see your relationship with your wife, you're out of step with Paul. What Paul is getting at here is something richer and better. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling Christian wives to adopt a posture of humble following and support. Let me explain. In the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, the chapter where God invents a marriage, God says that he made Eve, Adam's wife, to be a helper fit for him, to be a helper. Now, if that sounds demeaning to you, Please understand that the person in the Bible most frequently described as a helper is God. God is the helper in the Bible. God is the one who supports and nurtures and cares for, who tends to the needs of and who attentively helps his people. 
Paul's teaching here in Colossians is rooted in the Genesis reality that God's design for wives in marriage is to be a helper. Not exclusively, that's not a wife's only job, but that is one of those jobs. In chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, God makes very clear that men and women are created equally in the image of God in their own right. By the way, if you're here and you're a woman, whether you're married or unmarried, whether you've been married or never get married, the Bible teaches that you bear the image of God, that you are full of dignity and worth because you're created in His image, apart from any marital prospect whatsoever. And just by the way, the Bible doesn't require all men, I'm sorry, all women to submit to all men. Paul, Paul here is talking about a married man and a married woman. And if you are a married woman, uh, the Bible teaches that you have the privilege of reflecting the image of our helpful God by being a helper to your husband. That's not your only calling. That's not the only thing you do. That's not the reason you exist. But if you are a Christian wife, one of your callings from God, the God who loves you, is to be your husband's helper. And Paul teaches here that the specific help that wives give to their husbands involves submission. That doesn't mean never having an opinion. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It definitely doesn't mean tolerating abuse without seeking help. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is calling Christian wives to a humble posture of willing support, of following, of helpfulness, of deference. Included in the idea of submission uh, is the idea, as one commentator puts it, that the wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life using perhaps one of the many varieties of domestic blackmail. Uh, in our day, some have objected to this teaching by saying, well, Paul is clearly just accommodating the culture of his day. In Paul's day, wives submitted to their husbands, but we don't have to do that anymore. But Paul clearly is not taking his cues from the culture here. Looking in at verse 18, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The ground for Paul's instructions here are that they're fitting in light of Christ's lordship and the church's union with him. In the book of Ephesians, which Paul also wrote, in chapter 5, Paul writes about how in human marriage, from the beginning, there was to be a reflection of Jesus Christ's love relationship with his church. So Christian wives, not only do you reflect God's own character by being a helper, you submit to the Lord Jesus by submitting to the husband he's given you. Paul would say in Ephesians that your submission is a picture of Christ's church. I remember one time my mom told me about a time that she was counseling another Christian woman. And from what I gather, this woman had a fine marriage, nothing terribly wrong about this person's marriage. This woman found the idea that she was called to submit to her husband really difficult. Surely we've all experienced God's commands as very difficult at times. This woman was really chafing against the Bible's command to submit to her husband. And my mom told me that her counsel to this woman was, look past your husband. Look past him to Jesus. Submit to him 
because you can trust Jesus. Submission in marriage is about the lordship of Jesus. Sisters, that's a high calling. It's from the Lord who loves you. There in verse 19, Paul turns from wives to their husbands. Look again at verse 19. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That word love, that's the same word used in chapter 3, verse 12, when Paul calls Christians God's beloved ones. That is to say, Christian husband, the kind of love that God is calling you to have for your wife is the kind of love that he showed you when he gave Jesus Christ to die in your place for your forgiveness when you were his enemy. That's the kind of love, Christian husband, to which you're called. Paul elaborates in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands. Your leadership in your marriage is about the lordship of Jesus. Brother, if you think that your wife's job in submitting is harder than yours, you don't understand what you're being called to. If you think marriage is about you being the boss, you are doing it wrong. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, prioritize your wives over yourselves. Husbands, be willing to give up good things for your wives. Husbands, intelligently and sacrificially pursue the well-being of your wives. Husbands, attentively care for your wives. Husbands, seek the input of your wives. Husbands, make decisions mindful of the welfare of your wives. Husbands, listen to and ask thoughtful questions of your wives. Husbands, pour the sunshine of your unchanging kindness on your wives so that they might flourish. Husbands, do you have authority? The Bible says, yes, you do. God did not give you that authority so that you could be selfish with it. God gave you that authority so that like Jesus Christ, you might give yourself up for your wife in love. Husbands, love your wives, Paul writes. What does he say next? And do not be harsh with them. Brothers, what a mockery we make of the Lord Jesus when we are harsh. What a travesty that we would be impatient or unkind or anything less than gentle in a role in which our call is to imitate Jesus. One commentator writes this. He says, The husband must ensure that his love for his wife like Christ for his people, always puts her interests first. In particular, he must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her being the person she is. 
to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the first relationship Paul addresses in this passage, the marriage relationship. The second relationship Paul addresses here is one that naturally issues from the marriage relationship, and it is parenting. Uh, Paul addresses children and then their parents there in verse 20 and 21. The only thing I know less about than marriage is parenting. But let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All right, we are a Baptist church, but we are about to do some raising of hands in the service. Kids, raise your hands if you're a kid. If you're under 18 and you live with your parents, I see one hand, Joe. Hands. Very good. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Excellent. Kids, love you guys. I am so glad that you are here with us today. Kids, 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 kids. Jesus wants you to obey your parents. Jesus created you, and he wants you to obey your parents. Jesus died on the cross, and he wants you to obey your parents. Kids, kids, Jesus will forgive you if you trust in him, and he wants you to obey your parents. Kids, Jesus rose from the dead, And he wants you to obey your parents. Kids, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he wants you to obey your parents. Kids, Jesus decided exactly what family you would belong to. Jesus picked your family because he loves you. And he wants you to obey your parents. Not just sometimes... Not just when you're happy, not just when you feel like it, unless your parents are asking you to do something sinful, which knowing the parents in the room, that's not happening. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, listen, there is no one better to please than Jesus. Have you ever drawn your daddy a picture and given it to him, and he was pleased. Anyone ever do that? I used to do that. It's great to please your dad. Have you ever written your mom a sweet card, and you gave it to your mom, and she was pleased? I've done that. Do that. It's great to please your mom. Kids, it's the very best to please Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful. He's more wonderful than your mom and your dad. He's more wonderful than your coolest friend. He's more wonderful than anyone you could imagine. And the most important thing is to trust in Jesus so that he saves you. And Jesus wants you to obey your parents because it pleases him. Parents, I'm going to start using a variety of sentence structures again. Just a simple, you know, In this passage, 
The Apostle Paul, I think, assumes a lot of other things that the Bible teaches about the authority of parents over their children. I think Paul assumes here that parents are teaching their kids God's word, especially the gospel. I think Paul assumes here that, as he says in Ephesians, parents are bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul assumes that parents are correcting, when necessary, lovingly disciplining their children when they misbehave. I think Paul assumes that the love of parents for their children is to be a reflection of God the Father's love for God the Son. But isn't it interesting, the one line of counsel that Paul chooses to give to parents here, that first word of verse 21 is fathers, and certainly Paul could be speaking specifically to fathers as the leader in the home, but that word actually elsewhere gets translated as parents. So it could be referring to both fathers and mothers. That's my suspicion. In either case, Paul's instruction is this. Fathers, or perhaps parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Paul thinks that a key reminder that parents need as they perform the demanding task of parenting is not to provoke their children or not to needlessly stir them up, either to anger or to despondency. Paul knows that children sometimes respond with sinful anger or sinful despair, even to good parenting. But Paul wants parents not to stoke the fire unnecessarily. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. When you discipline your children, don't take vindictive pleasure in their getting their comeuppance. If you tease your children, only ever tease them in order to love them. Don't get your kicks out of frustrating your kids. You will at times have to tell your kids what to do. Children, obey your parents. But don't tell your kids what to do just because you can. Don't do it way more than you need to do. Parents, has God given you authority over your children? Yes, He has. He's given you a much more firm and a less mutual kind of authority than exists in marriage. Parents, you have an authority that means the dynamic between you and your kids often is characterized by you telling them what to do. But like all authority, God has given you authority over your parents, I'm sorry, over your children, not over your parents, for their good, for their flourishing Parents, use your authority gently. Do not provoke your children lest they become uh, discouraged. In our day, uh, the nuclear household most often contains just the two relationships that we've talked about, parents uh, living together with their children. But in Paul's day, many households would also have been home to an additional kind of relationship, the third relationship that Paul addresses here in our passage And that is the relationship, as our translation puts it, between bondservants uh, and masters. So what is a bondservant? I've never met one, been one, had one. Well, that's part of what makes this passage so tricky to interpret and apply. See, in Paul's day, uh, the labor economy was not anything like what we experience in first world countries today. And by the way, that's because of the influence of evangelical Christianity on the world. Uh, It was also, let me point out, the the labor economy in Paul's day, it was a different thing than the race-based chattel slavery of American history. 
right? That slavery was built on the triple sins of kidnapping, radical racism, and inhuman brutality. In Paul's day, it was fair to say that the, the economy was based on really a spectrum of labor relationships, ranging from employment, like what we would recognize as employment, really down to slave labor, which was very bad at times. And again, there wasn't a comprehensive system based on race. In the Roman Empire, there were Europeans and Africans and Middle Easterners. There were European slaves and European slave owners. There were African slaves and African slave owners. There were Middle Eastern slaves and Middle Eastern slave owners. Now, oftentimes, slaves or bondservants here, they could become educated. They had some protections. They could own property. They could purchase their own freedom. Uh, Many were dearly beloved by their masters or voluntarily set free. Many people sold themselves as bondservants in Paul's day because there really weren't many other economic options. There wasn't such a middle class as there is in our day. Sometimes slavery or bondservanthood was a form of debtor's prison in Paul's day. Sometimes those who lost in war were sold as slaves. And it does have to be said, in some cases, in Paul's day, slavery could be really, really brutal and immoral. In in my Bible, there is at the bottom of the page a footnote next to the word slave as it appears in verse 11, or maybe next to verse 22, bondservants in your Bible. And that points you back to the preface of the ESV Bible. It should be at the front of your Bible. It's not very long. Let me actually commend to you the preface of the ESV Bible and what it says about how to view that word uh, that gets translated bondservants. I think that preface actually does a pretty good job kind of giving an overview of this kind of servanthood, bondservanthood in the Bible. So suffice to say, uh, the Bible clearly and consistently condemns every practice that falls short of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Marriage and parenthood, those are part of God's creation. Economic relationships, those can glorify God, but insofar as they don't involve you loving your neighbor as yourself, they can be very broken and sinful. But at least in this passage, Paul doesn't call for the overthrow of a deeply flawed economic system. Many who read Paul later would do that, I think rightly. Uh, In fact, as numerous scholars point out, Paul sows the ethical seeds that ultimately erode the foundation of slavery. You tell people to love their neighbor as themselves long enough, and the idea of slavery becomes absurd. But in this passage, Paul's primary concern is with the behavior of God's people who find themselves in any kind of authority relationship in the sphere of work or labor. So I think that we are right to see a parallel, not an exact identity, but a parallel between what Paul says here and what, how we should behave in our work relationships or our boss-employee relationships. So speaking of work relationships, Paul says there, first addressing bond servants, there in verses 22 to 25. The command Paul gives there is very simple. It's in the first half of 22. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Once again, Paul's command for those who are under authority is submission. So if you're an employee, praise God that you have much greater autonomy than many of Paul's listeners would have had. That's a blessing. It's good that you can change jobs. It's good that your employer can't tell you what to do when you're not on the job. 
right? It's, it's good that your boss has a limited sphere of authority. But when your boss is acting within his sphere of authority, when your job description and his job description line up such that he has the right to tell you what to do, and he tells you what to do, Paul is saying that you should do it. And he doesn't just say you should do it. Look at what he says there in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. Friend, don't just work. Don't just do it. Do it heartily. Do it intelligently. Do it vigorously. Do it with excellence and eagerness to do a good job. Right? Work to serve those for whom you work well. Well, why would I do that? Right? What if my boss is a loser? What if he's impossible to please? What if I don't like my job? What if I work in a culture of mediocrity? Why should I work heartily? Well, four times in these verses, Paul answers our why question by pointing to the lordship of Jesus. Verse 22, Paul says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Brother, sister, are you more concerned that the Lord Jesus knows that you're working heartily or that your boss sees you working heartily? Who do you fear on the job? Whose opinion is your heart's eye fixed on? Christian, fear the Lord Jesus in your work. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Christian, understand, if you do an honest vocation in service of society to the glory of God, you do it as an act of service to Jesus, not ultimately to please people. Paul is calling you to serve Jesus in your job by serving your neighbor in your job. Verse 24, Paul says that we should do this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Christian, there is a massive, undeserved, eternal bonus headed your way. Not from your boss, but from the Lord Jesus. Work hard, Paul says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, eternal life as a reward. This would have been so sweet to slaves who couldn't have inherited anything in Paul's day. Inheritance was for free people. Paul says, you've got an inheritance coming from Jesus. Don't let being mistreated deter you from working faithfully because you're inheriting eternal life from Jesus. What does he say there at the end of verse 24? He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Think about that. These slaves, right? sweeping the atrium, digging the trenches, right? I don't know what the slaves would do, preparing the food, doing whatever the master told him to. Paul looks at that slave and he says, you are serving Jesus Christ. Christian, Christian who writes emails, Christian who fills out the spreadsheets, Christian who goes to meetings, Christians who do things for government agencies that no one can seem to tell me what those things are, but they seem really important. Christian, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So work heartily. Verse 25, 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So the Bible clearly teaches that everyone who believes in Jesus has all of their sins forgiven forever. And the Bible clearly teaches that we cannot earn eternal salvation. But the Bible also teaches that the deeds of Christians in this life, good and evil, will meet with some kind of reciprocation from God on the day of judgment. Many have suggested that this would involve loss of rewards in the case of wrongdoing. Paul could here be alluding to the fact that if our fundamental manner of life is that of a wrongdoer, we have reason to doubt whether in fact we do belong to Jesus. So brothers and sisters, if you work a job this week, work with your eyes on Jesus. Remember his authority. Remember that your hearty work in an honest job that blesses God's image bearers honors Jesus. Remember Jesus' promise of eternal life. Remember that he isn't partial. The final verse in our passage, there in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Masters, the other side of this third relationship, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Saints, if you have employees, if you have people under you at work, treat them like you want Jesus to treat you. Don't tilt the scales in your favor. Don't manipulate. Don't abuse. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be unjust. Don't be unfair. Don't be dishonest. Don't be unnecessarily harsh. Don't forget that you're not on top of the food chain. Don't forget that you are richly blessed to be under the good authority of Jesus. Don't forget to extend the grace you've been shown to those under you. The saints, what a difference the lordship of Jesus makes to our everyday lives, to the difficult issue of authority. Even when things are not as they should be down here, even when your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents or yourself are deeply broken. Even if you're a Roman slave, even if you aren't married, even if you aren't employed, even if you don't have kids, even if your parents aren't around anymore, Christian, you live under the sunshine of King Jesus' authority. He died to pay for your sins. He lives and reigns now and forever. And he's eternally committed in his authority, his almighty authority to your flourishing. And he calls us to relate to authority in light of his own. Let's pray now that he'd help us. Father, thank you that we know, as your word says in 1 John, that your commands are not burdensome. Father, thank you that the supreme authority in heaven and on earth has looked on us with kindness, with undeserved mercy and goodness and perfect faithfulness. God, would you help us to think about authority, any that we're under, any that we have, in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you do this for our joy and for your glory? Amen.